haven't we've had an incredible opportunity to hear a lot about Samson. The fact that he had so much potential, that God has been working in his life in so many ways, yet as a human, he failed. But we're also going to be able to hear how God is has working in our, way, in our lives, building our potential up in order to continue to serve him. Let's go ahead and pray right now and pray for Pastor Tom and, then, and, this, and the message to come. Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for how you're continuing to work in our lives. And, and right now, God, I pray right now that you would work through Pastor Tom. Thank you so much for our leader. Holy Spirit, thank you for providing Pastor Tom to our, uh, to our congregation, our family. And I, I pray right now that you strengthen him, continue to give him the words, and bless the message that you've given him. Jesus, we love you, and ask this in your name. Amen. 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 Uh, and it's interesting, uh, we mentioned that Aaron is from out of the, this congregation. That's true. She got saved right here at this altar. And, and many of you know her story, but she, she uh, came here with the intention of committing suicide later in the afternoon. We had prayer at the altar. She came. Somebody, the person that prayed for her, prayed as though uh, she knew Aaron's story. And, uh, you know, we say, why don't, why don't these things happen? They happen. They happen. They happen right here. And uh, we're thankful for what God is doing. Yesterday was the men's softball tournament. Uh, your own Central Assembly team, coached by Steve Sislow, player coach, by the way, Steve Sislow, even at the age of 78 years old. He's... <laughs> Still playing. Uh, amazing. Um, they took second place. And a long, long day. And uh, so, yeah, we, my, <clears throat> my daughter, who's home with a sick child today, Gloria, uh, her husband Josh plays. There's Josh back there. She texted me at 10 o'clock at night after a barbecue at one of the other players' house at Kathleen and Chad's house. She texted me. She said, Dad, you can be so proud of the men that play on the Central Assembly softball team. And I am. You know, we're, I think we may be the only team in the league that the guys actually come from the church and attend the church, and, and, uh, and we finish second. So anyway, proud of our teams. Uh, we love you guys. And uh, yeah, so Judges 16 is where you can turn this morning. Um, Samson was called by God to serve Israel in the age of the judges, during a time of oppression by the Philistines. Today, uh, that's where we're hanging out, Judges uh, 16. According to the Bible account of his 20 years as judge of Israel, there was this recurring weakness in his life. The weakness in, in Samson's life is not new to us. It's been around since the beginning, I suppose, and, and lingers even to this day. Samson's weakness, like that of so many others, was women. Not uncommon, this weakness. It's been a thorn in the side of many down through the ages. Even King David was not immune to the powerful lure of a beautiful woman. Let's look at some of Samson's, ex uh, let's look at some of Samson's sexploits this morning. Samson's first love was back in Judges 14. Remember this from earlier in the series? It says, Samson told his father and mother, I have seen a woman of the daughters of the Philistines. Get her for me to wife. And his father and his mother said, is, is there not a woman amongst all of your own people that you have to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she pleases me well. This is how we began our 
series, Samson being driven by his sexual desires. The unnamed Philistine woman from the city of Timnath was Samson's first foray into the sexual realm. Despite Deuteronomy 7, which forbids marriage to a Philistine, in spite of his parents' advice, in spite of all the warnings, in spite of all the red flags, Samson blindly trudged on, and it was a disaster on every front. Samson's second relationship is found in our chapter from today, Judges 16. It says, then Samson, verse 1, went to Gaza, and there he saw a harlot and went in unto her. Samson's second recorded sexploit was a prostitute from Gaza. Gaza, at some points in time, is referred to as Philistia, the land of the Philistines. And remember, Israel and the Philistines are mortal enemies. Verse 2 says, And it was told of the Gazites, saying, Samson has come hither. And they compassed him, or surrounded him, and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city. And they were quiet all night, saying, In the morning when it's day, we shall kill him. But Samson arose at midnight, and took the doors of the gate to the city and the two posts, and went away with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders, and carried them up to the top of the hill that's before Hebron. Samson's third lover is found in the next two verses, four and five. It says, it came to pass afterward that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came to Delilah, and they said unto her, entice him, so that we can see where his great strength lies and by what means we can prevail against him that we may bind him and afflict him and then we will give thee, each one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Delilah's name is a play on the Hebrew word Layla, which means night. can also mean flirtatious. Samson's name, by the way, means the sun, S-U-N. Interesting, their names speak of night and day. And indeed, it's the story of a struggle between dark and light, between good and evil. Verse 6 continues, Delilah said to Samson, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein does your great strength lie, and wherewith thou mightest be bound to afflict thee? And Samson said unto her, If they bind me with seven green withs that were never dried, then I shall be weak, and I shall be as any other man. And she bound him with them. And then she said unto him, The Philistines are coming. This is where I got the name of the series. And he broke the withs as a thread is broken when it touches the fire. And so the source of his strength was not known. Delilah said unto Samson, Behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Now tell me, I pray thee, wherewith you might be bound. And he said unto her, If they bind me fast with new ropes that have never been occupied, then I shall be weak and be as any other man. Verse 12, Delilah therefore took new ropes and bound him therewith and said unto him, The Philistines are coming. And he brake them off his arms like a thread. Delilah said unto Samson, 
Hitherto you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me wherewith you might be bound. And he said unto her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web, she fastened it with the pin and said unto him, The Philistines are coming. And he awaked out of his sleep and went away with the pin of the beam and with the web. And she said unto him, How can you say that you love me when your heart is not with me? You mocked me these three times and you have not told me wherein your great strength lies. And it came to pass, the Bible says, when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was vexed unto death. Verse 17 says, and he told her all his heart. And she said, and, he, and said unto her, There has not come a razor upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Delilah is introduced to us as a woman from the valley of Sorek, which means Vineyard Valley. It's about 12 miles southwest of the city of Jerusalem. And at the time of the story... It was occupied by the Philistines. Delilah is never mentioned as the wife of Samson, and we're not told definitively whether she was an Israelite or a Philistine, only that she was from the valley of Sorek. Ultimately, Delilah's persistence paid off. Samson confessed to her that the secret of his strength was that he had taken the vow of the Nazarite. If you want to learn more about that, you'll have to go all the way back to part one of our series. You can get that series in, in, a, in a number of different ways and listen to the, the section on the vow of the Nazarite. Delilah exploited Samson's weakness for her own gain. And Samson gave in as a result of his weakness for women. Temptation is something that all Christians face, no matter how long you've been following Christ. And it, and it should be noted that temptation is not sin. The Bible records, in fact, that Jesus was tempted. Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. It should also be noted there are ramifications to sexual sin. The tagline for the series, in my mind, says it all. The tragic story of Samson's lost potential. We'll never know what Samson could have accomplished had he devoted his strength to judging Israel well. We'll never know the legacy he could have left, the difference he could have made, the impact he could have had had he been a man after the heart of God. Samson's weakness compromised his potential. Eventually, Delilah used his weakness to discover the source of his strength. Think of the irony. Verse 18 says, When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up at once, for he has showed me all his heart. The lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand. And she made him sleep upon her knees. She made Samson sleep upon her knees. Some speculate that perhaps alcohol was involved or an opiate of some, source, of some sort. And she called for a man and caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. 
And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. Verse 20 says, she said, the Philistines are coming. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go down as at other times. And he knew not that the Lord had departed from him. The Philistines took him, put out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza, bound him with fetters of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. From this moment, we hear no more of Delilah. She came and she went, like so many others, and left a fallen man in her wake. Her host of ramifications to sexual sin. Samson found that out. It's a sin distinct from all others because it's a sin against your own body. When it comes to sexual sin, church, you're playing with fire. Proverbs asks, can a man take fire into his own bosom and not be burned? You're opening up your soul to the emptiness and the regret of something impossible to undo. It's interesting to me that they gouged out Samson's eyes. And still, you cannot unsee what you've seen. Sexual sin can lead to a loss of trust and respect in the community. It can inflict untold pain on the people closest to you. Sexual sin can lead to tormenting memories that can taint future intimacy with your spouse. Sexual sin can compromise your ministry and negatively impact those weaker in the faith. Sexual sin brings with it a loss of self-respect, a discrediting of your name, and a boatload of shame and embarrassment. And this isn't even including the possibilities of STDs and unplanned pregnancy and the marital issues and relationship problems that can be introduced through sexual sin. The list of people done in by sexual sin is a veritable who's who of celebrities, politicians, ministers, athletes, and power brokers. They were strong and vibrant. Many of them were the Samsons of their field. Gary Hart, Jim Baker, Alexander the Great, Jimmy Swaggart, John Edwards, R. Kelly, David Letterman, Roy Moore, Kevin Spacey, Matt Lauer, Tiger Woods, Bill Clinton, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, and the list goes on and on and on. And what we learn from the fallen, church, hear me now, and what we learn from the fallen is that strength in one area of your life does not make up for weakness in another. That's a lesson Samson never learned. The weakness in his character was stronger than the strength in his body. The enemy of your soul wants you to use wants to use your appetites to ensnare you. The desires are normal, even healthy. But Satan twists what God has created for his own intents and purposes. God's plan for you is to 
harness your appetites and channel them in a healthy direction to flow within the plan of God and to resist the traps and the snares that come with blindly following your desires instead of willfully following God. And so doing, you avoid the ramifications of sexual sin. And to that end, we endeavor to defeat temptation. The question becomes, the first question has to be, do we have to sin? And the answer, church, is no. If the answer is not no, then God is immoral to judge us. There are ways to defeat temptation. It's way too easy to say, I'm only human. Nobody's perfect. The ways out of temptation are proven. But in order for them to work, they must be implemented. Just because you've heard them before doesn't give you the right to dismiss them as ineffective. You have to put them into practice in order for them to work. Now, a big part of the temptation equation, no matter what your enticer is, is the principle of the first frame. It's depicted in an old comic strip called Kathy. And in one of the comic strips about Kathy, Kathy is on a diet. And in the first frame, Kathy decides that she's, she's just going to drive by the bakery. In the second frame, Kathy decides she's going to walk by the bakery and just look in the window. The third frame, Kathy decides she's going to go in the bakery and just smell the cookies. The fourth frame, Kathy decides she's going to buy some cookies just to have on hand. And in the last slide, Kathy is sitting at her kitchen table devouring the cookies. Now the answer to defeating temptation is the principle of the first frame. Her best chance at staving off temptation was early in the process. The answer was not to drive by the bakery. The moment she got in the car and drove toward the bakery, she was heading down a slippery slope, and the farther down the road we get, the harder it is to turn back. Your best opportunity to defeat temptation comes early in the process. It's like quicksand. There's a point of no return. There's a point where the hold that it has is too strong. You have to first frame it. Now let me give you this morning five steps to defeating temptation. Five steps to defeating temptation. Number one, recognize you're prone to sin. We all have a sinful nature. We are all drawn to sin. If I said, uh, as, as church was dismissing this morning, if I said, don't look in the coffee shop after church, you would all want to sneak a peek. As soon as we see a sign that says wet paint, our instinct is to reach out and touch it. 
Romans 7, 9 says the commandment came and sin revived. The temptation to sin is a given. So don't be caught off guard by it. Expect to be tempted and be prepared for it. Pride leaves you vulnerable. Thinking you are different or, or that somehow you are the exception to the rule sets you up for failure. James 1, 14 and 15 says, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So that speaks of being tempted, enticed. Verse 15, Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And when it is finished, it brings forth death. Samson thought he was too strong to lose. He was wrong. You're prone to sin. You are predisposed to sin. Recognize that. And you have a fighting chance. Number two, flee from temptation. When you come face to face with temptation, look for the way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Listen to this next little phrase. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able but but with the temptation God will also make a way of escape there's always a way out church listen if you're facing temptation there's a way out we have to flee temptation this is what Joseph did when he was propositioned by Potiphar's wife he ran he fled. He bolted. He made a straight shot for the door. He headed for the hills. He took to the highway. He found the way of escape. And that's what God has promised us. A way of escape. But it's up to us to take it. Samson, on the other hand, dabbled. Samson played with the temptation. Samson flirted and toyed and trifled with the seductress. Samson poked the rattler with a stick and it came back to bite him. The only way to successfully resist temptation is to have a plan in place for when it comes and that plan is to flee immediately. Can, can you say amen to that as a church? Number three, invoke the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God through the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought unto obedience in Christ. One of our weapons is the Word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 says that God's Word is quick and powerful. In other words, it's alive and it's active. It's available for us to use and to implement at our discretion. Jesus repeatedly used the Word of God to overcome the devil's temptations in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 in the wilderness. He said, it is written. And then he would quote Scripture to the devil. It's one of the reasons we read the Bible daily. We're hiding it in our heart. We're ingesting it. We're downloading it. We're memorizing it so that in our hour of temptation, it's at our ready. If you read the Bible regularly, 
You will have the full counsel of God at your disposal. This is how we gain the mind of Christ. When temptation comes our way, we have a weapon available to fight back with. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. Invoke the Word of God. Look the devil in the eye and say, It is written. Number four, refocus your mind with praise. They call this diversion therapy in the realm of mental health. If we, if we lock in on our temptation, it's only a matter of time before we succumb to it. This was Kathy's problem in the comic strip. But if we choose to begin to praise instead, we've diverted our focus from the sin set before us. But praise not only devote, diverts you from the temptation. Praise not only diverts you from the temptation. Praise will keep you in the Spirit. Now remember, remember that your flesh and your spirit are on opposite sides of the battle. It's pictured by the little devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other shoulder. And, and we think of that as kind of Fictional, maybe, I'm not so sure. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other. Your flesh is the part of you that corresponds with the world. Your spirit is the part of you, the part of your being that interacts with God. Romans 8.16 says the Spirit itself, that's capital S, the Spirit of God, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit, small s, that we are the children of God. Our spirit and our flesh are contrary one to the other. They're, they're juxtaposed. They're on opposite ends of the sin spectrum. They're like water and oil, light and dark, night and day. We begin to praise, we divert our mind from our temptation. But we, we, we not only divert our mind from our temptation, but we also move from the realm of the flesh into the realm of the Spirit. We immerse ourselves in the things of the Spirit. Try it sometime. Let me ask you this. How often have you, have you been tempted to sin when your heart and your mind are fully focused on worship in the Bible? We just sang... Together we praise God. My hunch is no one here was tempted to sin in those moments, right? Why? Because we're immersed in the Spirit. We're, we're walking in the Spirit. Now there's other times of the day, there's other times in our life when we're walking in the flesh. We're much more likely to fall prey to temptation. And it's in those moments when we have to make the choice to refocus our attention, refocus our mind, and just begin to praise, to praise God. The spirit and the flesh are contrary to each other. Light and dark cannot occupy the same room at the same time. You may not be strong enough to resist temptation on your own, but as you focus on God and as you fill your heart he will inhabit your praises. He will move you out of the grip of temptation and into the realm of the Spirit. When temptation comes, refocus your mind with praise. Number five, repent 
immediately when you slip. Don't let a slip become a relapse. When we fail to flee from temptation, we inevitably will fall. In that moment, the key is to repent quickly. Failing is not the end of the world, but it's dangerous to persist in your sin. Don't let a slip become a relapse. Don't let sin flourish, for when it is full grown, James told us, it brings forth death. David's sin was well documented. It was, it was grievous sin. No small matter, to be sure. And there were significant ramifications that David had to endure. But David repented. You can read Psalm 51, and you can see how David opened up a vein and his contrition poured out. David went on to do great things for God. David, in fact, is referred to in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. When you sin, repent. When you sin, turn from your sin. Change your ways. Talk to someone. Build in some accountability. Do whatever it is you have to do, but repent. Let me bring this to a conclusion, and the worship team can, can make their way up. I believe we do not even know, hear me now, I believe that we do not even know what it is we're craving. Ultimately, we are not really seeking sex. Ultimately, the void in our heart isn't simply the release that comes with sexual intercourse. We're not really seeking sex. We're actually seeking sexual fulfillment. You can have sex in many different forms with many different people, but there are ramifications, and somehow it always leaves you empty. Sexual sin comes with guilt and shame. It's interesting to me that for most people, their first sexual experience is laden with guilt. Why is it? My hunch is it occurred outside the protective boundaries of God's amazing plan for intimacy. The physical part was there, but that's not really what we were looking for. We're actually longing for sexual fulfillment, and that, can be, that cannot be found outside the will of God. Sexual fulfillment can only be experienced within the safe and wholesome confines of marriage. Sex within marriage is special because it encompasses both aspects of our being. We're physical and we're spiritual too. That speaks of, of the teaching of dualism that believes in both the material and the spiritual. Within marriage, sex encompasses both your physical and your spiritual nature in an amazing expression of love. Let me just state for the record, there is nothing like it. As I look at my beautiful wife. Listen, I understand the March of the Penguins. I understand it perfectly. The 2005 movie Penguins, Penguins are depicted as walking upwards of 70 miles 
to their ancestral breeding grounds with just one thing on their mind. It's a powerful appetite. But sexual fulfillment is more than just the physical part. Within marriage, it's a celebration of your whole being. It's an amazing dance of every sense and every nerve and every fiber and every synapse all happening at once, all firing at once. It's physical for sure, but it runs much deeper. It's a beautiful, wonderful, transcendent experience you need not be ashamed of or feel, feel guilty about within marriage. Outside of marriage, you can have the physical part but it's void of the spiritual part. A strictly physical relationship undermines the spiritual aspect to love. You're cheating yourself. Young people, you're cheating yourself. Outside of marriage, what the Bible refers to as fornication is sin. Let's just call it what it is. It's sin. It comes with guilt and shame. And while there is certainly a pleasure part to it, it's a passing pleasure and it comes with a cost. God knew exactly what he was doing when he directed us to have sexual relations only within the borders of the marriage vows. Samson had a call upon his life. He was in a powerful position to influence as judge of the nation of Israel. He certainly had all the physical tools. He was gifted and strong, but he had a glaring weakness. And because of his weakness, the tagline to the series is the tragic story of Samson's lost potential. Lord, I pray for the one here today that struggles with a weakness in this area. It's a powerful drive. We don't deny that. Lord, we're tired of the guilt and we're tired of the shame. We're tired of walking in the flesh when we could be walking in the Spirit. So Lord, this morning we acknowledge that we don't have to sin. It doesn't have to be the way we live our life. And if we will but implement the things available to us, we can be free. It starts with knowing Jesus. I pray for the one that's here today who doesn't know Jesus. Somewhere in that message we talked about repenting. Repenting is more than just saying you're sorry. Repenting means to turn from your sin. So today we confess Jesus as our Savior. Lord, we thank you that, that you came. We were lost. The human race was lost. I was lost. And God, you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus, into the world to live a perfect life, a sinless life. And then to die on a cross as payment for my sin. And if I will but receive him by faith, 
And if I will but repent and turn from my sin and begin to live for him, then I can be saved. The Bible calls it born again. It speaks of new life. It speaks of hope. It speaks of a life free of guilt and shame. It speaks of peace. It speaks of a joy that transcends our circumstances. Lord, I pray that you'd set us free. That you'd help us to make wise decisions in our, as we stand at the fork in the road, that we would begin to implement the tools available to us in the name of Jesus, that we might be free. In Jesus' name, amen.